There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On December 25th, 1993, President Clinton, the self-styled comeback kid, released a statement following the death of Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, author of The Power of Positive Thinking. Clinton paid tribute to Peel's wondrously American values of optimism and service. To Donald Trump, Peel was a family friend, pastor, and the greatest guy. Peel insisted, you need be defeated only if you're willing to be, a message Mr. Trump seems to have interpreted in his own special way. While The Power of Positive Thinking is Peel's most successful book, reputedly selling 15 million copies, one of his earlier publications has a simpler title, You Can Win. Can Donald Trump win again? I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, the prospects for Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, and the future of the Republican Party. Mr. Trump launched his third White House run this week in the ballroom of Mar-a-Lago. His speech was an hour long and contained many of his greatest hits, plus a new proposal to execute drug dealers. But the speech gained less attention than normal, and attention is Mr. Trump's lifeblood. Is there now an opening for another Republican? And is it Ron DeSantis? With me this week to talk about Donald Trump, his campaign announcement, and the Republican Party, what all this means for American politics, are Charlotte Howard in New York and Idris Kaloon in Washington. Idris, you're in Palm Beach this week, and you're the only man I know who would be able to go to Palm Beach and find a rare bookstore. Yeah, that's right. I was looking around for some cultural enrichment, and I walked into a rare and fine bookstore, and I quickly realized that it was out of my price range because the copy of Beloved that I was looking at it was signed by Toni Morrison and cost $950. So I probably shouldn't have even been holding it. But they had a lot of cool stuff in there. They had an inscribed version of Profiles of Courage that Kennedy had sent to J. Edgar Hoover, which I think was only a few hundred thousand dollars. So if you're in the market for it, it's there. Palm Beach feels like the sort of place to be selling books for a few hundred thousand dollars that, that people perhaps haven't read. Anyway, moving on. Charlotte, how's your week been? My week has been fine. I'm noting that Idris is wearing a fleece that has his alma mater's crest on it. And my conclusion, I think, is that a Harvard crest is to Idris what a diamond ring is to the women of Palm Beach. This is your reaction to the status symbols of Florida. I think there's only one week a year where you're allowed to wear Harvard swag. And that's there's no week. That's before the uh, football game with Yale, which 
Alice and I are going to. So that'll be exciting. We're going to see some college friends and see my sisters who are there. This is a real test of your marriage, Idris. If she is still with you after you've dragged her to the pitiful display of athleticism that is the Harvard-Yale football game, it will be a sign of true love. She's excited. Okay, Idris, but before you get to the Harvard game, there's a lot of politics to digest. You've been writing large chunks of this week's Economist. Let's start in Florida. Where else? Idris, you were in the Sunshine State on Tuesday for Donald Trump's announcement. And then I think you swapped notes with our colleague Alexandra Switch-Bass, who covers Florida for The Economist and has been writing about Donald Trump's likely rival, Governor Ron DeSantis. Yeah, that's right. Alexandra and I jumped on a call to dissect the speech. Idris, good to see you. What did you think of last night? I thought he was kind of low energy. He didn't seem to have his heart in it. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. I didn't need this. I had a very nice, easy life. This is something I didn't need. And a lot of you people don't need either. But we love our country. and We have to take care of our country. We have to save our country. It also didn't seem like it was the big event that him descending from the staircase was in 2015, if you can remember that. And I think there were a few reasons for that. One, he had spoiled his own surprise by hinting as closely as one could hint on the campaign trail that he was going to be running again. Two, he didn't diverge that much from his usual speaking pattern, which is incredibly unscripted, a bit rambling. And what we saw also was that the reaction was not nearly as large as I would have anticipated. You know, Fox News cut away from the speech in the middle of it. A few other outlets didn't show it in its entirety or just showed a few clips of it. So I I think that there's a certain amount of tiredness with which this was all received. I thought your description in what you wrote was really interesting about the crowd outside, the throngs of MAGA fans, and then the elites inside, because actually it's kind of the converse of the state of the Republican Party right now. You have the elites not wanting Donald Trump to run largely, the donor class who are looking strongly at DeSantis and other alternatives. And it's the base who was not able to be really present for the Mar-a-Lago speech. They were ring-fenced out, who are his biggest supporters. So it looks like we're going to have a contest between two Florida men for the primary. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. I think it's a fascinating contest between... Ron DeSantis and the man who made him Donald Trump. Of course, DeSantis has not formally announced, but it seems increasingly clear that he's going to. And I have only begun. There is still so much that is unknown about him. We don't know a lot about what his economic agenda will be and some of his other policies. So I think that besides not being Donald Trump, donors are not necessarily wedded to Ron DeSantis. They have hope in him, but I think they're willing to back whoever is the most viable alternative. Today, that's Ron DeSantis, but I think a lot can change between now and 2024. I think that Ron DeSantis has embraced a kind of strategic ambiguity, which has been very helpful for him because he is one of the few figures who is able to triangulate between the really hardcore Trump base, they still like DeSantis and the never Trumpers who see him as a viable alternative to him. But I don't know 
whether or not he can maintain that for much longer. He is going to, I think, have to start defining himself in contradiction to Trump. I think that's right. And it's an awkward dance for someone like Ron DeSantis. When he was running for governor in 2018, his ads were about his association with Donald Trump. He was rooting on his daughter who was building a wall out of toy blocks and checking on his infant who was in a MAGA onesie. So to go from that and the fact that every voter in Florida knows that he was elected by 30,000 votes, which is a tiny, slim margin, less than 1%, due to Donald Trump's intervention in the race, that it's awkward and inconsistent, to say the least, to now be attacking the man who made him. But he's going to have to. Maybe this is because I haven't slept enough. But the whole Trump-DeSantis psychodrama reminds me, do you watch Star Wars? I do not, but I'm sure many of our listeners do, so would appreciate the comparison. Well, you know Darth Vader, and you know the Emperor. I do. Okay, so the Sith have something called the Rule of Two. There can only be two Sith at a time. And there's the Master and the Apprentice. And what inevitably happens is the Apprentice takes on his own and kills the Master. And then there are two again. And there's something that's very similar, I think, afoot with DeSantis and Trump. Unlike some of the other candidates, you know, like Len Youngkin has tried to maintain a distance throughout his career. But DeSantis, I think, really was made by that pretty fawning and sycophantic ad, right? That's what he was known for. And now to have the audacity to turn against Trump is something that I think Trump has found really kind of personally upsetting because he thinks, I think rightly, that he helped make him. Charlotte, my favorite bit in Idris's piece about Donald Trump's announcement is where he's writing about the speech that Donald Trump gave at Mar-a-Lago and said that the most heartfelt line in the whole thing was when Donald Trump said, I'm a victim. What did you make of this speech and also the way it was covered and the reaction to it? Well, it was kind of interesting, right? Because it was clear he was going to announce this week before the results of the midterms. And so that was kind of locked in. But it did underscore this idea that the outcome of events in the real world don't affect his planning. I mean, he's just someone who doesn't really care too much about facts in the way that maybe another politician would. But I was struck by two things, I guess. One was that Ivanka wasn't there and that she seems to be trying to distance herself a bit and perhaps prepare herself for her own political career. And then the other is, in the coverage of it, the Wall Street Journal was very strong in saying that Trump shouldn't be the party's future. The New York Post was very strong, similarly publishing columns to that effect. Rupert Murdoch, who owns the Journal and the Post, wasn't a big fan of Donald Trump before the 2016 elections, but eventually ended up backing him because he saw Trump as someone both who could win and who could pass some of the policies he favors, like tax reform, which Trump did. But I was struck by the backlash, or at least the strongly worded sentiment from Murdoch-owned outlets. The question is whether that has any effect on Trump's prospects or Trump's planning. I'm not sure that it does. One thing I'm struck by is how little his plan seemed to have changed in response to the midterm elections, which were a disappointment. I think that he was expecting that a red wave would hit D.C. and he would be in the primary position to take credit for it. That didn't happen, obviously. And it's completely unchastened him, right? He basically took credit for 
the house flipping he said that he was the man who was responsible for nancy pelosi losing her job as speaker and then blamed the other republicans for everything else that had gone wrong and went about his merry day so you know i think that that strategy backfired but also the classical trumpian characteristics of lack of shame or lack of contrition are very much present I'm kind of interested by this phenomenon of how an ambitious politician is finally reined in and the conversations that happen behind closed doors as they're preparing to run. Because there's this confluence of events where the type of people who go into politics are those who feel like they have something unique to offer. And I won't call them egomaniacs, but they certainly are confident in their own abilities. And then the structure of advising is one in which if an advisor tells someone not to run, they lose their job, right? And so there's this kind of ecosystem that builds up around candidates that's designed to always propel them forward. And so for both of you, I'd be interested in your view. And what's the actual roadblock that emerges? Is it a roadblock that looks like DeSantis? Is it a shift in donors away from Trump? What's the thing that you think might actually obstruct him? Or do we have to wait for voters to weigh in in the primaries in two years? My view is pretty much the latter. I mean, I think we will have to just wait and see how those early primaries go. I'd be interested to hear if Idris has a different view. I mean, one of the things that strikes me looking at this, if you take a slightly longer view of American political history, is that in the 1970s, the parties concluded that they were too distant from American people and that making decisions based on you know influential people in smoke-filled rooms was a bad way to pick candidates. And so... They introduced these reforms and brought in direct primaries, right, involving the party bases in the picking of candidates. And once you've done that, actually, the opinions of advisors, the opinions of the elites, even those who give your campaign lots of money, end up counting for a lot less than what the opinion polls in those early states say. And those opinion polls currently, Dries pointed out, and Alexandra, I think, pointed out in her piece this week, give both Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis pretty favorable looking odds at the moment. Yeah, I mean, God help us all, we have a year and a half until the first primaries for the 2024 election. So a lot can change between now and then. Trump is a bit premature in declaring breathless speculation will be fairly premature for the next, I don't know, year. But I do think that in 2016, Donald Trump triumphed in a very fractured primary. And if there's another fractured primary with a lot of contenders who don't drop out this time around, I imagine that would be to his benefit if instead Ron DeSantis is the consolidation candidate and it's basically up or down vote on Trump directly and DeSantis is the only possible beneficiary, then I could see it being a different outcome from the one I expect. But, you know, there's a lot of time between now and then. So I think if possible, mild disengagement from American politics would be advisable. Says the man who presumably wants people to tune into his podcast. <laughs> Speaking of conversations behind closed doors, I'm very curious about how DeSantis and the DeSantis camp has greeted this surge in favorable coverage. And I wonder in DeSantis land whether they view all that as a good thing or now that Donald Trump has his sights set on this opponent, are they bracing themselves for uh, a pretty rocky stretch? And what does he think about the timing of his own candidacy. One of the weird things with Trump declaring so early is campaign finance laws do go into effect once you've declared, right? So that that determines when you can start deploying the cash from your campaign chest. So there's a reason generally why people don't declare this early. And so my big question is, what does this do to Ron DeSantis's calculus? 
Okay, well, we'll indulge in a bit more breathless speculation about what's going to happen next. But I think we'll also try and zoom in a little bit on Ron DeSantis's policy platform, the extent that we can glean things from his time in Congress, and also as governor of Florida. Donald Trump, of course, wrote a book called The Art of the Comeback. But are presidential comebacks ever a good idea? In a moment, we'll go back to another time a losing president tried a comeback. But first, the usual reminder that you should take out an Economist subscription if you don't have one already. That will give you full access to everything we do here at The Economist. Idris and Charlotte, what have you particularly enjoyed from our past week's coverage? I cannot get enough of the FTX story. I think it combines all the elements of, you know, an Enron scandal plus tech mania. And it's hard to overstate the schadenfreude in New York of business people who have always viewed some of these things as a scam. So there's lurid details, but there's also really substantive questions, right, about the future of crypto and the benefits of financial regulation. I think we've just covered it in a way that is clear-eyed, sensible, and also fun to read. Uh, Yeah, you stole my answer from me. I think Alice has been covering FTX to the point that she's fallen completely down a rabbit hole, but it's a very fascinating one. Yeah, I mean, just what a crazy story. The more you learn about it, the more insane it all appears to be. There's also a really good 1843 piece about the effective altruism movement, tracing its history and talking to a bunch of the participants. That's well worth a read as well. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe. You'll find it in the notes for this episode. Only Grover Cleveland secured non-successive terms in the White House. But Donald Trump is not alone in dreaming of a return to Pennsylvania Avenue. Would you mind telling us who you're going to vote for and why? Hoover. I'm going to vote for Hoover because I think he has stood the international crisis as well as any man has. And this is no time for a change. Unfortunately for President Hoover, most Americans voting in the 1932 presidential election did want change. Franklin D. Roosevelt won a landslide election. Herbert Hoover sought to assure the country that his present planning would see the end of economic strife in America, but the public would have none of it. The fact that Mr. Hoover had been president during the market crash of 29 and the succeeding years of monstrous unemployment was sufficient to sink the Republican ship. Hoover retreated to California to lick his wounds. Ex-President Hoover passes three quiet years. In an interested but detached way, He keeps in touch with national and international affairs through his alert secretarial staff, through correspondence with old friends, through visitors who come to pay their respects or whom he invites especially. But he was determined to retain his control of the GOP, even hoping to be the party's nominee in 1936. At the Republican convention that year in Cleveland, Ohio, he gave a speech attacking FDR's record. Thus only can America be preserved. Thus can the peace and the plenty and the security be re-established and expanded. Thus can the opportunity, the inheritance, and the spiritual future of your children be guaranteed. Hoover's plan failed. The actual nominee was a fresh face, Kansas Governor Alf Landon. Landon is the candidate for the presidency of the United States, who hopes to hustle Roosevelt out of the White House into the doghouse. Here's Landon addressing young Republicans on the need to look to the future. Our first voters are not content with the past. They have their eyes on the future. They have the courage and the ambition to go forward. 
Hoover, presumably, sounded more like the past. But even after Landon's defeat by FDR in 1936, Hoover was not ready to take a back seat. Struggling for control of the weakened party, Landon complained they were like two undertakers, quarrelling over a corpse. Even in 1940, Hoover hoped to win the nomination, and an economist roundup of presidential candidates included Hoover in his accustomed role as a dark horse. It was not to be. The White House remained out of reach for a president forever associated with the privations of the Depression. Hoover Day in West Branch, Iowa. In August 1954, Hoover celebrated his 80th birthday in his hometown. And for his birthday, West Branch has invited thousands to an old-fashioned Iowa party. His sons, grandchildren, and great-grandson join him. President Trump will be hoping to celebrate his 80th birthday, like President Biden before him, in the White House. Idris Hoover, I guess, is also an example of how hard some candidates find it to let go of their presidential ambitions. Generally speaking, presidential comebacks haven't gone too well. This one, Donald Trump comeback, I think it'll come as no surprise to listeners, all three of us think would be a terrible idea for America and also for the Republican Party. Teddy Roosevelt, I guess, is one exception to the comeback jinx. Well, he had two terms in office, then didn't like his successor, William Howard Taft, and launched a third party in 1912, which effectively split the vote and made it very easy for Woodrow Wilson to win. So that isn't, you know, the right example, although it might be that if Trump loses the nomination to Ron DeSantis, that he, out of spite, creates a third party that dooms the prospects of a Republican winning, which I think Democrats would be very happy with. The other option from history that he has might be a bit more like Richard Nixon, who lost in 1960 to John F. Kennedy. And, you know, I think a lot of people thought was done in his political career, but managed to actually get back into the presidency in in 1968. So, you know, he could hope for that outcome as well. And I don't know which one we'll get. But I do think that the idea that we've seen among some Democrats that Trump is so weak that he won't be able to mount a serious challenge for the nomination or that he is so politically radioactive that they would relish the chance to go against him if he did win is very reminiscent of 2016. And, you know, obviously that didn't work out well for Democrats then. I think there's a very realistic chance that it wouldn't work out for them this time either. I think if Trump were the nominee in 2024, I think Democrats are rational to think that is a good thing for them, that they think that that would increase their odds of keeping the White House. But I will say two things. One is that it used to be the case that parties had to articulate some kind of positive vision for the country. And I'm just really struck, particularly in 2020 and now again in 2022, where it's basically just the loss aversion theory of politics, where you don't have to stand for anything. You just have to stand against the other guys. And I find that as being truly uh, dispiriting. Democrats didn't present any kind of plan, really, this time around. If they had maintained both houses of Congress It's not clear, really, to me at least, what they would have done. I don't think it was clear to most voters what they would have done. Republicans clearly don't have any kind of platform they're running on. It's all just about your political odds and the idea that a hatred of one party or a fear of one party control inspires the other side. So I just want to note that as sort of remarkable that we've entered that phase and that it works. The theory of loss aversion shows that people are more 
motivated when they're afraid of something than they are when they're excited about it. And so you see that borne out in, in turnout numbers. But then just to dwell on Trump for a second, you know, I'm just really struck by how bad an idea it is for him to run. I mean, he's the first Republican to lose the state of Georgia since 1992. You have the Democratic Senate candidates that year who were successful handing the Senate to Democrats. And now he announces right before a runoff in Georgia. I mean, it just seems like a horrible idea for the Republican Party as a whole. And I think it reinforces the idea that he doesn't care really about broader political chances for the party. He cares just about himself. That's not a surprise. It just is underscored by the events of the past two weeks. I've read some arguments this week that say that the Republican Party is in deep trouble either way, because either Donald Trump becomes the nominee again, and he's a real drag on the Republican Party. We saw that in the midterms. And actually, one of the best pieces, I think, in the US pages this week is Elliot's piece, his midterm maths, where he quantifies quite what a big drag Donald Trump is. And one of the things he finds is that if you look at House races, Republicans actually did really well in terms of the numbers in seats that they already comfortably hold. So Donald Trump excites people in red districts, deep red districts, and they turn out in great numbers. But that is hopeless if you're trying to win over marginal seats. And Republicans did really badly in those marginal seats. And that explains why you could have a swing towards the Republicans in the House, but only a very, very thin majority. So Donald Trump persuades people who are already enthusiastic about Republicans, but doesn't persuade anyone who might reasonably be described as a moderate. So Republicans are in trouble if he ends up being the nominee again. And like Idris, and I think like you, Charlotte, I think that's a real possibility here. And it's something that people are discounting a bit. But if he's not the nominee, it also seems quite likely that he will turn his flamethrower on whoever is, right? Because he's not like a normal Republican politician who might put the interests of the party first. And so Republicans are potentially in trouble if he's not the nominee either. I mean, I think it's to Idris's point about you know, idle speculation two years in advance. I think that's a bit overdetermined, but I think there's something to that argument. Okay, we'll be back in a moment to hear from an America First insider about how the Republican Party will navigate the path to 2024. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We heard earlier some snippets of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago announcement on Tuesday that he's running for the White House in 2024. But where does that leave his party, which seems increasingly divided between Trump loyalists on the one hand and skeptics on the other? Russell Vogt is one of the loyalists. He was the director of the Office of Management and Budget under President Trump. And he is the president of the Center for Renewing America, which is a MAGA-flavored think tank. I've been talking to him about what's next for Donald Trump and for the Republican Party. We started with Trump's announcement on Tuesday night, which Russ witnessed firsthand. It was great vibe in the room. He looks great. He's looked great for two years. I felt rested. And I think he's ready for this. And I think it will be 
a long process, but one that I think he is particularly well suited to take to the finish line. And I'm excited to see him do it. As you say, it does look like it'll be quite a long process. And it's quite likely that we'll see a contested primary on the Republican side. Is that a good thing from your point of view, a bad thing? I don't think it matters. I think that he will dispense with any opponents in the primary. As you know, I've come out in support of him. I think a primary helps him shape his arguments and win the debate. But I I think that's going to happen no matter what. So I, I don't expect it to be a large primary. His reputation for being an an aggressive campaigner and a relentless campaigner will keep people or at least make people think long and hard about whether they want to get in. It will be long in the sense that there's two years to go, but I think I'm not worried about his ability to be the nominee uh, and to be successful. I think he's exactly the right person both to do the job and to win the job. Hmm. I wanted to ask you a question about the Republican Party and how it's changed and the degree to which Donald Trump's remade it in his image. That question relates to the candidate question, right? If you believe that the America First movement is truly in control of the Republican Party, then the identity of the candidate maybe matters a bit less. Yeah, except the establishment by which I mean the leaders in Congress, the policy, most think tanks, most of the fundraising apparatus in D.C., not necessarily across the country, are bought in on kind of the old pre-America first version of conservatism and what the Republicans stood for. So, you know, I believe that Donald Trump changed what the country was fighting for, the agenda setting process in a fundamental way. And we set this organization up because we talk about in our mission statement that we've become too secular, we've become too individualistic. We're conservatives, we love our rights and our freedoms, but communities are the the place that you enjoy those rights. Drugs ruining your cities and your rural areas is a enormous problem, and critical race theories is a, is a normal problem. So these are the correctives that I think that the America First movement represent, and in his candidacy really is, at the end of the day, a fight about whether we go forward on those issues or whether we go back and we are going to be the party or the movement that just talks about tax cuts just talks about deregulation. And believe me, I'm the dereg guy. But it's not what you base an entire movement on. It's not what you're losing your country over. I mean, there was a swing towards the Republicans in the House, and it looks like they'll take the House. It's quite a small swing compared with other midterms. The Senate picture hasn't been so good for Republicans. So how do you interpret the meaning of that result or those set of results? I think it's concerning and it really confirms us a gut feeling I had going into the elections, which was, what are we standing for? I know the grassroots is fighting for a lot. I know we're fighting for a lot. But in terms of the Republican Party, there, there was no national agenda. And I think what voters did was they rewarded people that were fighting and had taken hard choices to their jurisdictions and been very persuasive. Ron DeSantis did great. Individual candidates did great. J.D. got across the finish line in Ohio. And I think that that is an indication of what people are looking for. And so it's also one of the reasons why I'm supporting President Trump, because I think he particularly appeals to that group of voters that is absolutely vital in these key states. And I'm just not convinced that a Republican Party with anyone not named him 
is going to be able to lean forward and have the strength of personality to force the agenda to appeal to voters who are in those states along blue-collar lines. Russ, you mentioned Ron DeSantis there in passing. We've got an article in this week's Economist trying to look through the policy differences between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. What do you think those are? Are there any that you could highlight? I think there's a lot of commonality on them, but I think there are unknown questions about foreign policy. You know, the governor hasn't had to think through. I like both of them. I look at it more about who I trust more. It really comes down to that because, you know, I think he's been a great governor. I think Donald Trump was a great president. I think the central issue for the country right now is a woke and weaponized government and whether we are going to have self-rule in this country, self-government. I think that's on the ballot. And, you know, I think a lot of the people that might run uh, could have compelling ways that they could address that. But I've seen it. I've seen it up close and personal. And I believe that he has the broad shoulders to be able to withstand the pressure that it will take to actually execute on those reforms to actually get the job done. I ask you a foreign policy question. I mean, we're talking on a day when Russia has launched a lot of missiles at Kiev and is still trying to take out critical infrastructure there. What's a proper America first response to Vladimir Putin's aggression in Ukraine? Our organization's view, my view, is that our foreign policy elites in this country have a preoccupation with Vladimir Putin, the threat of him being able to take over the entirety of Europe is just not real. And so everyone wants to compare this to World War II. It's not World War II. And it's largely a European problem. It is not a perspective that of just drawing back and not being engaged in the world. Uh, I think America first means peace through strength. Like re- the strength is really important. The strength of, of President Trump's administration kept Russia from doing anything along these lines. Charlotte, Alexandra earlier had that nice line about how in the Republican Party these days, the elites are on the outside and the base is on the inside. And it was the opposite at Mar-a-Lago. How lastingly do you think the party has been remade in Donald Trump's image? I think it's pretty sticky. I think one thing that doesn't work that well for Trump acolytes is the argument that you need Donald Trump in order to advance this America first strategy. There are so many other Republicans within the party not just Ron DeSantis, but Cotton and Hawley and Rubio and others and, and J.D. Vance. I mean, you could, there are a lot of people who are out there who have advanced ideas that are very different from what we would think of as traditional Republican ideas. And so the question is whether you can have that America first policy that was advanced by Trump without Trump himself. And I think that you can. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. If you think about 20 years ago, what a right wing person would be. He would be a neoconservative, full-throated endorser of intervention abroad. And in 2000, you know, if you were really right-wing, you thought that tariffs should be zero and, you know, cross-border flows were great and trade was good. And obviously, you you think the opposite now if you're really right-wing. Even 10 years ago, if you were Paul Ryan, you thought that the existential threat to America was the debt and you needed to uh, lower expenditures on Social Security and Medicare. And Donald Trump very, I think, astutely decided not to pursue that in his campaign. 
And, you know, the America First movement is fairly comfortable with large welfare state and large amount of deficits, particularly if they're going towards tax cuts. So, I mean, the way that he has changed the movement, I think, is is going to be, even if he isn't at the top of the ticket, is going to be felt throughout the party for years to come. Yeah, all of that's true. And I also think it's interesting how it relates to Ron DeSantis, because he's a bit of a bridge between that older libertarian-tinged Republican Party. I mean, if you look at his time in Congress for what that's worth, he was a founder member of the Freedom Caucus, aggressively pursued a sort of tax-cutting, shrink-the-state type agenda, which actually isn't that in keeping with MAGA. And as a governor of Florida, he's been quite libertarian on some things, right? So the opposition to lockdowns for COVID, which I think served him quite well. He's also decided not to expand Medicaid, which is something that quite a lot of other Republican governors have done. That seems small statey. On the other hand, he has increased the salaries of teachers in Florida and also of law enforcement folks, of police officers, and tried to recruit more. So he seems to me to be like a kind of a selective libertarian, if you like, but not if you look at his full record in politics, fully MAGA. What, what do you make of DeSantis as a policy phenomenon, Charlotte. I mean, I guess we have to admit up front, there's a lot we just don't know, right? Yeah, I think that he's kind of a pragmatic MAGA guy. It's just very, very different to be a MAGA person as a congressman, where you can grandstand and take all kinds of outlandish positions and oppose certain legislation and propose preposterous bills and govern a state that has lots of hurricanes and has an enormous system of public schools you have to manage. So I just think it's a very different kind of beast when you have a governor. And Ron DeSantis has proved that with his record. Going back to the relationship between Trump and DeSantis, though, the way that Trump will go after DeSantis in the coming months is going to be interesting. And I think a little scary to watch, as you heard at the beginning of your interview, you heard sort of the reference to Trump as a ferocious campaigner, which there's a lot packed into that statement. But you have Trump offering the combination of the weird comedian with Ron DeSanctimonious and other kitschy catchphrases that he likes to deploy against his enemies. But then he's also referred to kind of knowing secrets about DeSantis, this weird threat that he has some trove of information that will really damage him. And then, of course, you also now have, in a way that you didn't in 2016, the knowledge that Trump actually controls people who are a mob who are willing to do absolutely crazy things. And so the combination of those three layers of Trump opposition, I mean, that's a pretty powerful set of tools. I agree with Russ Vogt's assessment that Trump is a very particular type of campaigner. And so I think the question is how quickly he brings the full force of each of those three strategies to bear. Idris, have you got a closing thought? We've seen that a lot of his biggest donors before people like Steve Schwartzman and Ken Griffin are abandoning Trump. And uh, a lot of them have donated to Ron DeSantis. We've seen, you know, as we mentioned before, the Rupert Murdoch-owned papers are turning against him. A few congressmen who were thought of as Trump acolytes weren't able to make it to Mar-a-Lago because the weather was bad in D.C. You know, there have been many moments, I guess, like this post-midterms where it has looked like Republicans might veer away from Trump. There was the Axis Hollywood tape. There was the Charlottesville incident. There was the first impeachment. There was the second impeachment after January 6th. And what we've seen before is there's usually been a few flickers of consciousness, but then a reversion to Donald Trump. And I guess what's different about this moment is there is a clear alternative. 
And it also looks like Donald Trump is no longer good at winning Republicans' elections. Those two things, I think, might push them to finally have a different outcome. But I think many people will remember that they've seen this movie before. Okay, well, I think this will not be the last time that we talk about this subject, but I think we'll try not to overdo it because there's a lot of time between now and the 2024 presidential election because there are other things going on in America aside from politics and because at heart we're all really policy nerds and so we like to cover that stuff. So there will be plenty of 2024 on checks and balance in good time, but I think we may give it a rest for a while. However, there is no rest for you two because before you go, I have a quiz for you. Wedding bells are, of course, ringing on both sides of the political divide this week. Donald Trump's daughter Tiffany has married at Mar-a-Lago. And President Biden's granddaughter Naomi will tie the knot at the White House on Saturday. The Economist, it turns out, after scouring the archive, has reported on several previous White House weddings and engagements, describing one father of a soon-to-be bride as, quote, reserved, shy with strangers, and comfortable only with his own family, end quote. This president, quote, does not like to be photographed with his coat off, end quote, accepts that he is not gregarious or eloquent, but had recently embarked on a publicity blitz and had been interviewed by Barbara Walters. Who was that president? Nixon. Nixon? You got it before I even ended the question. I don't know if that's within the rules. Anyway, Nixon it was indeed. Until you said Barbara Walters, I was going to guess Calvin Coolidge, who was known for being reticent, but... There's that famous line about Coolidge, isn't there? I don't know if it's actually true. Do you know that one where he's supposed to have sat next to a woman at dinner who said, my husband bet me that I could get more than two words out of you. And Coolidge just said, you lose. What a charmer. (laughs) Question two. Who's the only president to have married at the White House while still in office? It's Grover Cleveland. Idrissa had a clue lined up, and I didn't even need to deploy it. The answer is indeed Grover Cleveland. So that's 1-1, honours even. Cleveland married Frances Folsom on the 2nd of June, 1886, in the White House Blue Room. Cleveland was 49, his bride was 21, and on honeymoon, they were besieged by reporters peering in through hotel windows to Cleveland's apparent fury. Hmm. His honeymoon was in Maryland. He went about an hour outside D.C. I suppose it was the 1880s. Okay, well, thank you, Idris. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thanks. This episode was produced by Julia Johnson, and our sound engineers are Nicola Rofast and James Stickland. Jennifer Granholm, the US Energy Secretary, is the guest on The Economist Asks this week. You'll find that wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like Checks and Balance or any other Economist podcast, please let people know and leave us ratings and reviews. That will help people to find our podcast and also make our boss Zani happy. You can now explore our whole archive at economist.com slash checkspod. And you can get in touch with us via email. The address for that is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance for you next week. <laughs>